We live in a rational world. We have rational discourse. We expect certain things to occur in the bright light of day, but there is a power to the night. A power that makes mockery of irrationality or reason and logic. Today, from PRX and NPR, Snap Judgment proudly presents Spooked 2. The Return of the Fallen. True stories about that which goes bump in the night. My name is Glenn Washington, and people wonder, they say, Glenn, are you going to have blood and gore and bad words on your Snap Judgment program? No. No, 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 no. We don't need that. You see, I'm just going to tell you the truth. You can watch your saw. See your nightmare on Elm Street. Ooh, I'm so scared, I'm so scared. But no, the scariest things are those that actually happen. And that's why, yes, sensitive listeners, young children, people who are justifiably afraid of the dark are advised and given fair warning that evil lurks today on the Snap Judgment program. And we're going to kick off today's show with a taste of the good and the bad. See, Leia Acosta was a tenacious young woman with a fetish. A fetish for old, crumbling homes, and what could be wrong with that? My name is Leah, and I'd always had a thing for old houses. I was 22 and bulletproof at the time, and so, long story short, I ended up buying my first house. This one, it was a 6,000-square-foot brick Victorian It looked so miserable. It was literally like a time warp walking back into that house. Everything was as you might have found it in 1901, except for the fact that it was falling to pieces. And it had a very distinctly empty feeling throughout the majority of the house, except in what was the servants' quarters. On my very first tour of the house, Once I walked into the servants' quarters, there was no question in my mind that there was somebody right around the corner in that room. And so, while still standing outside the room, I just said I wasn't there to cause problems and I didn't want them to run away, but that I would appreciate not being frightened out of my skin, thank you very much, and please do not let me see you because that's what freaks me out. I just kind of got a sense of peace that was like a breath of air that said, oh, okay. I really felt like it wanted to take care of the house, and that's why it had stuck around. We started calling it a she, and she was always amazingly considerate. Very early on, my family members started having occurrences. At night, they would hear slippered footsteps, and the door would open to their bedroom, and somebody literally asked them if they had enough blankets, or are you warm enough? And you would hear the skirts rustling. And these doors, there was no way to just push a door open. You had to turn the handle all the way, and then you had to push it open. They had a very distinct catch to them. And so on innumerable occasions, there were people that asked, you know, did you come into my room last night? And it was always, no, it wasn't me. I literally can't pawn it off on being my own imagination. Now, when we would hear her on the stairwell that was the servants' quarters stairwell, we would hear shoes, you know, the clicking. But if she was on the main staircase, it was a softer footfall. And I discovered that servants were required to wear soft slippers on the main stairs so as not to scratch the finer woods. I started to have more and more experiences with her in the kitchen. I've always enjoyed cooking, but I was confronted by a situation in that kitchen because I had about a 150-year-old wood cook stove And it just confounded me. And I was just really bent on the idea of learning how to use it because my great-grandmother had, so why couldn't I? And so I got it into my head to bake a pie one day and I tried to get the temperature up on the oven part to be sufficient to be able to make a pie. And no matter how much wood I stuffed into the box, I couldn't get the temperature to come up. And that's when I first heard the sound that I came to really associate with the spirit that we later came to call Annabelle. She would tisk and hiss, sort of like a a clucking old mother. It would sound something like (sighs) (sighs) So she would tisk and sigh when she was just 
completely aggravated with your obvious ignorance. And so I heard the tisk and the sigh, and I was so frustrated with the stove at the time, I just didn't really care. And so I kind of stomped my foot and said, what? If you've got something to say, say it. And I very distinctly heard, pull that lever. And I stomped my foot again and I said, no, I'm not gonna pull that lever. I tried that a minute ago and it just killed the fire completely. And so I hear again and just pull the lever. So figuring, fine, I'll fill the room with smoke just to prove you wrong. I went ahead and pulled the lever and the temperature shot straight up. Apparently I hadn't pulled it at the proper time. And then she proceeded to teach me how to make a proper pie crust. Those are the kind of things that happened in my kitchen on a fairly regular basis. I think she was utterly astounded that I had ever found anybody to marry me because I was obviously completely incompetent as a woman. But she uh, took me under her wing to a degree and helped me fill those areas where I was so obviously weak. Of course, I wanted to know as much about the history of the house as I could. We all found some documents, literally, underneath the floorboards in the attic that indicated that had been built by the man who owned the brick factory in town, and he had alcohol problems and died fairly young. The mother also had passed away fairly young. He had all but bankrupted the family before he passed, and now with the mother being gone, the girls and apparently their nanny, they had the house over their heads but no way to support it. We found out that they were running a car polishing business. And there was two sets of leather-bound ledgers with identical dates but different charges for each line item. Mr. So-and-so had such-and-such -such done for 50 cents, and on the other books, the same Mr. So-and-so had such-and-such -such done for five bucks. And rumor had it, it was a rather notorious cat house for that same time period. So left to their own devices, and that was about the only way they could make a living. And so it, it became part of our story that maybe she had been the nanny when they were young and then became the madam after the fact. One of the very last rooms that we renovated was the stairwell going up to the servants' quarters. There was wallpaper in that stairwell that had an odd brown mark every other step at about shoulder height. If a person was walking up the stairs with some sort of wound on their shoulder and leaning against the stair every time that footfall hit, they would leave a smudge on the wall there and that's exactly what it looked like. Every mark was the same as the next with a sort of streakiness. You had asked if I had ever been afraid around her. One occasion, and it was literally one occasion out of the nine and a half years that I was there. I rounded the corner, leaving the kitchen, and encountered what I had come to be familiar with as her presence. But behind that presence, I felt something completely different, and it was dark, and it was not pleasant. And it was the first time she had ever addressed me without that sort of tisk, sigh, here's what you're doing wrong kind of thing. She said, turn around and get out of here. It's not right. And so I hightailed it out of there up to her room. You know, I closed the door behind me and there was no way that I was coming out of that room until I got the all clear from her. And that didn't come till the next morning. I got the distinct gut impression that it had something to do with whatever had caused those marks on that wall. As the renovations on the house were becoming more and more complete, and as it started to look like the home that she remembered it being, her presence became more and more infrequent. She just didn't feel the need to come around quite as much anymore. And besides, I'd learned how to use the stove. Some folk just talk to ghosts instead of running away. I will never understand, but I appreciate Leah Acosta for sharing her story. And let us go ahead and give a shout out to Miss Annabelle, the nanny turned madam, perhaps the most gracious spirit ever to be featured on the Snap Judgment program. And huge thanks to Lane Ember and Estelle Marchison for the trials and spirits they dealt with just to bring us this story. And that's a story in itself. It was produced by our own Rita Daniels. And now, it wouldn't be a spooked episode unless Snap paid a little visit to the mortuary. Now, of course, this is not some place you want to go unaided and unfamiliar. And thankfully, we've got a guide. Uh, 
I was an apprentice embalmer. I lived in an apartment at the funeral home that was on the grounds of a large urban cemetery. When the sun sets and I lock the gates, I was the only living human there, and I loved it. At night, it was my own personal park, just me, the deer, and the dead. I have no idea if there is such a thing as ghosts, but I do know that the dead can possess you. As the new apprentice embalmer, who had not yet finished mortuary college, I had done removals alone before, but this night was different, because this was the first time I had been cleared to embalm a body solo without a licensed embalmer directly supervising me. I was excited and a little nervous about it. I was on call that night, and the nursing home I got called to at about 1 a.m. was the one you don't want to end up in. It reeked of despair, the aroma of sweats and cheap disinfectant and urine. It was always too hot inside, always humid. There was an endless din of moans and groans and screams and incongruous mutterings from everywhere in the building. The jaded staff used towels to tie the doors closed so that the inmates that were ambulatory could not escape and run into the night. The attendant untied the back door for me. He told me what room the body was in. And with that, his obligation to the dead man was over. He seemed relieved. I pushed my gurney up the hallway. The left rear wheel was squeaking a bit, but I could only barely hear it beneath the sounds of dying coming from the rooms. I arrived at room 127. I was looking for bed B. There were four occupants of the room, two asleep, one awake, one dead. I located bed B. I slid my gurney next to it and began the process of wrapping the body in a sheet. Sagging muscles hung from his arms. I guessed his age at about 87. There were a few sores on his body. I thought they were bed sores? but I hadn't seen many dead bodies yet in my career. There was one on his upper left arm, about three inches in diameter, about a third of an inch deep. It was wet, and it seemed alive. And I took great care in not touching it, even with my gloved hands. It disappeared as I covered him with the sheet. I got onto the other side of the gurney, reached over it, and began to slide the wrapped body from the bed to my gurney. He was screaming for days. It was the awake occupant of the room. His name, Donald, was written on masking tape over his bed. Yeah, I answered. He had surprised me, but I was trying to be professional even though I wasn't a professional yet. He kept screaming, it's eating me. It's eating me alive, over and over. Well, it's done now, I told him. Yeah, thank God. Now I can get some sleep. I just nodded at Donald, rolled the loaded gurney back to the van, then drove to the funeral home. I would be doing my first solo embalming. I slid the dead man from the gurney to the stainless steel prep table, unwrapped the sheet, and began to remove his hospital gown, but I stopped. There was that sore again. It looked bigger somehow, but that wasn't possible. Still, it seemed to be growing. Universal precautions. That is something they teach you in mortuary college. You always assume everybody has every disease, and you protect yourself accordingly. The old embalmers tended to ignore that rule. I've seen them embalm wearing just gloves and an apron. I could do that too, except that's sore. It seemed evil. 
and it still seemed to be growing. It's eating me alive! He had screamed. I put on the protective gear, and I embalmed the body. I was still afraid to touch the sore even when I was double-gloved and completely encased in a protective suit, but I did cover it with cotton I had soaked in formaldehyde. And still, it seemed to be growing. I took one last look at that evil sore, then covered the entire body in a sheet. My first solo embalming was done. I was back in my apartment and back asleep within an hour. I didn't get back to the funeral home until about 6 p.m. My boss was eagerly awaiting me. Before I could even get out of my car, he asked, did I wear protective clothing last night when I embalmed the body? Yes. Why? Necrotizing fasciolitis. Necro what? Flesh-eating bacteria. I almost fainted. The body was at the coroner's office. The health department had shut down the nursing home. The patients were being sent to other facilities, some of them to isolation. It was a terrifying moment. But for me, it was over. For others, it was just beginning. A week later, I got a call to the coroner's office to pick up a body that had also been infected with flesh-eating bacteria. The patient's name was Donald. It was the Donald from the nursing home. The coroner's staff member that had picked up the body from the hospital told me to be careful. Before the poor guy died, he was screaming, It's eating me alive! Kyle Bowen. Ladies and gentlemen, Kyle Bowen. He was a graduate of the San Francisco College of Mortuary Science in 1989. He's since worked as a real-life mortician for 15 years. This is the real deal. We don't make this stuff up. Kyle now writes and performs in Chico, California. The story was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Pat Masidi Miller. Now, there are so many, many, many more stops on today's tour of the Snap Underworld. Do not be afraid. Actually, be afraid. But don't go anywhere. Snap Judgment, Spook 2, The Return of the Fallen, will continue in just a moment. Back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. And now you know the supernatural often takes the blame for things outside our control. That whole devil make me do it thing. And you might say excuses, excuses. We make our own futures. We shape our own destinies. Well, maybe. But then again, maybe not. This story takes place in Annandale, New Jersey. Ken lived next to a huge 10-acre farmstead, and one day, he was driving past it in his car. 
Um, but I noticed that there was a lot of police activity going on. You know, I never wanted to infringe on them, but I went down to see if my neighbors needed help. They had fallen into foreclosure and the house was being taken over by the sheriff's department. There was a standoff between the sheriff's department and the woman who is the wife of the owner. Ken's neighbor was holding a shotgun and wouldn't leave her house. And at that point, I said, please put your guns out. I don't want to get in the middle of a gun battle. And I was able to disarm Jane. Ken convinced Jane to calm down and the sheriff to let Jane have the rest of the day to move out. The sheriff went around the property taking pictures for the bank. And in the meantime, Ken decided to help Jane move her most treasured possessions out of her home. She started telling me, why couldn't he just leave us be? We're multimillionaires and we had everything going for us until we moved on to this property. And the ghost, the ghost, John did it, John did it. I'm like, what are you talking about? Ken thought she was blaming some non-existent being for her own failures. The place was creepy, but that's just because they'd taken such bad care of it. Ghosts aren't real. In the library of this house, which is the original funerary room, and in the fireplace, a piece of forged metal on it, in German, it says, don't bother fighting death, because death will always win. And when I was asking the woman what she wanted in the house, I said, I got a screwdriver, I'll take this off the... And she screamed at me, don't you dare touch that. That is John's. General John Van Fleet. And nobody's allowed to ever take that off the mantle. He would be very upset. So I'm like, oh my gosh, this woman that I've known for all these years, that she was just absolutely a wacko. Ken was sad to see his neighbors go until his wife started admiring the old house. Sure, it was falling apart, but it could be spruced up. We wanted to have horses and cows, and we wanted a historic property that was paramount. They were huge history buffs, and the house certainly did have history. Ken did some research and found out that the first owner had been John Van Fleet in 1742. He'd been a general in the Revolutionary War and had lived there with his 10 children. Perfect. Ken called the bank to negotiate details of the foreclosure. They said, well, it's on 10 acres. A builder can come and knock it down. I told them that a house was historic. And I said, well, do you know that the house is haunted? And with that, the phone dropped. And I hear one woman say to another woman, oh my gosh, go get the photos, go get the photos. Remember those pictures that the sheriff had taken for the bank earlier? She said, there, there, we, have, we have a picture of a, a girl floating in the middle of the air by the fireplace in one of the rooms. Rumor had it, that was John's daughter, Abigail Van Fleet. Neighbors started whispering about stories of Abigail and John floating through the house. There was talk about a curse. So John and his wife decided they wanted to do some investigating. They looked up the history of the house and contacted three of its past owners. Every single one told them the same thing. That the house was haunted. And this is the kicker. Every single person that has ever lived in this house for the past 10 generations has ended up in bankruptcy. Many of them have become divorced. Several people that have had cancer, the mother of the last owner, she died of mysterious circumstances. Ken ignored all the signs. He moved into the house, confident that they would end the string of bad luck. Until one day, when he was painting a room with his son. I see this black cloud, this apparition, and it traveled across the room from one side to the other. It almost looked like a swarm of gnats and it went right into the wall and disappeared. My son, Kenny, runs in from the hallway and that's where the cloud went into. And he said, this thing just came right through the wall. This black mass, that was an absolute, to me, validation. I was always skeptical and that is what makes me believe to this very day. After that, General John Van Fleet started playing with them all the time. Things went missing, a presence filled the room, and it became clear that Ken's family wasn't special. After all, death will always win. My wife is absolutely positively, as well as all my kids, convinced that this house does actually have a curse on it, a bad, 
bad energy. Every house that I've lived in has been wonderful. We've had a happy home existence. My wife and I have a very tight marriage. Everything has gone to hell in a handbag with this house. And then I came down with stage four throat cancer. We're heading towards foreclosure ourselves. Ken's cancer also gave him short-term memory loss. He can't work. And now his wife holds down two jobs to sustain them. They fight a lot now. And the only reason that we maintain a strong relationship is because we always keep it in mind that there's something that's at hand here that we're beyond any control over. Well, there's one thing they can do. Ken's looking for a new house, one with a little less history. Thanks so much to Emil Klein for venturing into the haunted house to get this story. I would not do it. No way. I'm not trying to see anyone's general, but we'll have a link to Emil's storytelling and art project, Your U.S., on our website, snapjudgment.org. The story was produced by Stephanie Fu and Emil Klein. And now, did you ever play dangerous games when you were a child? Cowboys and Indians, cops and robbers. I'll bet you didn't play one half as dangerous as what you're going to hear about next. And that's for a very good reason. My name is Francisco Antonio Miguel Nino de Ortiz Ladron de Guevara. That's why they call me Cisco. This story is a true story, and it happened uh, when I was a young boy growing up in Los Alamos. Back in the day, these canyons that are between the many beautiful mesas there in Los Alamos where all the labs and all the homes are, were used as uh, target practice for the military guys that were stationed there. And people like to hike through these canyons because they are very scenic and special places. There's one canyon in particular where the the bigger artillery shells were practiced with. And one of the uh, fathers in the neighborhood found an old, old military shell that came out of a a tank or some kind of big artillery gun. It's a pretty good-sized shell. And he uh, examined it and tested it. You know, it obviously was a dud. It was old and rusted. And so uh, he gave it to his kids to play with. And the the fun game that actually went on for quite a few weeks was uh, you'd play some kind of pretend army thing and you would take the shell and you would throw it up in the air and then run and pretend that it would explode. I was six or seven years old. I was not allowed to stay up past nine o'clock, but in the summertime, nine o'clock, it's still light, and it's so heartbreaking for little boys and girls to have to go to bed while it's still light outside. I mean, it's really not fair. And I remember my mom calling me in after we were playing this game. You know, I was really sad, and I was in my pajamas. I was looking out the second-story window of our little apartment building out on the older kids who were allowed to stay out late. And they are playing this game in the middle of the street where they would throw the bomb up, and as it fell, they would pretend it'd explode, and they'd run and pretend that they got blown up. Only this time, when it came down, it did explode. And horrible horrible injuries to these young young people. One boy lost his sight, one boy lost his arm, and one girl, beautiful blonde-haired blue-eyed girl who I had uh, a crunch on, you know, even though I was real little, lost both of her lower legs. It was an absolutely horrible, horrible tragedy, and um, it really, really affected the entire community for many, many years. And me, I always wondered about her legs. What happened to those legs? I was kind of obsessed with these lower legs version of what happened to them. That next year, I was deemed old enough that I could stay up a little later. And I remember uh, being so happy that as the sun was going down and that extra beautiful, special, magic time when the light is really, really beautiful. And I was running around our apartment building, enjoying that light and, and enjoying my freedom of I got to stay up until dark. That was so cool. And I was thinking about that girl's legs, and I ran around the corner, and there were the two lower legs standing all by themselves in my yard. I was horrified. 
I was amazed. I fell to the ground in fear, trembling and crying and, and just yelling in just primal fear because of these two legs. And the legs started walking back and forth. And I just like, Aah! I was beyond fear. I was completely paralyzed with fear. When all of a sudden I was brought back to reality by my mom's voice coming from behind a sheet that she had hung on the clothesline. And in that special light, the sheet color blended with the sky color, and I couldn't see it. All I saw were her legs below the sheet. She's going, what's the matter, son? And brought me back to my senses. I'll never forget that. That's burned into my mind, those legs just standing there. And then they started to walk back and forth. Today, Cisco Guevara wows people with his stories while rafting the rivers of the Southwest. Find out more on our website, snapjudgment.org. The story was produced by Rita Daniels and Renzo Gorio. And now, Nicole Selkin. She's a young woman living in Santa Cruz and was looking for a room to rent. Just looking for a nice place to live. Hurrah, hurrah. Nicole found an old Victorian that had just become available to renters for the very first time. The funny thing about it is when I walked in the door the first time, there was a kind of a pretty big wooden picture frame with all these little pictures in it. It was the only thing in the house. And I took it down and looked at it, and it was a picture of the house in the neighborhood with no other houses around it, just redwoods. So it obviously was really old. And in also other pictures, there was various old family photos. <sighs> the first weird thing was my friend had spent the night just sleeping on my floor and woke me up and said she had seen a girl standing in the doorway of my room. She was in a blue dress and she was about 10 and had blonde hair. That was really creepy. <laughs> Maybe a week later, I woke up from a nap and I saw a figure standing in that doorway, a girl. And so then I was hanging out with someone and of course I was like, let's do a Ouija board. And I tried to talk to this girl. I was like, are you here? What's going on? And it kept going to the same things on the board. Like I need light. I need air. I got the impression that this girl had been locked away or something. The other weird thing that happened was my friend came over. He was like, oh, would you see that? And I was like, what? And he's like, I just, I swear I saw just a little boy around the side of your house. Do you have any neighbors with kids? And I was like, no. He saw it twice, inside and then running around the outside of the house. So then I started to get nervous. My friend said that he had a psychic friend who is a, a clairvoyant, I guess, someone who reads spaces, who didn't really even need to know much about the house. I told him nothing. This is all a stranger who knew nothing. And he told me crazy things. He said there was three ghosts in my house. He said there was a little girl who was lonely and who probably had been ill in her life. He's like, I see her needing space and air, everything that I'd seen on the Ouija board. And he's like, and the other thing I see is a little boy who's sort of more mischievous, but not malicious. And he's like, now the last ghost I see is more malicious. And he was like, that's not great. I was like, just tell me, I need to know what's in my house. He said, there's a man in his younger adult years. This guy should be wearing an old-fashioned man's suit and a hat who is sort of a pervert ghost who will watch women sleep, but he's like particularly attracted to women. And I was like, whoa, this going to do it. But I was really scared. So I figured I should go home and tell my housemates what I uncovered. And I had sort of a house meeting with people who were living there. I didn't want to like plant the seeds in their mind. I wanted to check in with them if anyone had seen anything. And so one of my housemates who I barely knew said, I just thought it was a dream, but I woke up and there was a face in a, like a, in a hat staring at me. And I was like, what kind of a hat? And she's like, I can't explain it. And it was then that I thought, wait a minute, we have that picture. And I grabbed the picture off the wall and was when I really looked at the picture and realized that all the ghosts that I'd been heard of were all in the pictures, every single one, almost like the ghost came out of the picture. <laughs> <laughs> 
a little girl with polio crutches and the little boy. There's other pictures of like a young man in a bowler hat. I said, did it look like this guy? And she started crying. She was like, oh my God, that's exactly what it looked like. I told them the truth. I told them everything. And that was enough. I got myself out of there and then I immediately found another place to live. It was too much. As you might imagine, Nicole has not been back to the house. She works on theater projects in San Francisco now, but thinks her new place might be haunted as well. That story was produced by Stephanie Fu. And when we return, I'm going to tell you the scariest thing that ever happened to me personally. And would you believe it involves submarine sandwiches? When Snap Judgment Spook 2, Return of the Fallen continues. Don't turn out the lights and don't go anywhere. We're back to Snap Judgment Spook 2, The Return of the Fallen. And I know you. You're thinking, Glenn, well, these people had their little stuff going on because deep down, they believe. And I was with you. I was where you are, and that is why the scariest ghost stories to me come from those who do not believe. This next story comes from a guy you wouldn't want to mess with. His name is Mirko Buchveld. He's English, and just to give you a taste of why you don't want to mess with him, here's how he ended up in San Francisco. I uh, came here with a British karate team for the World Games in 89, uh, and I've been here since. So Mirko is a big dude, six foot two, 240 pounds, fifth-degree black belt professional karate master. But his ex-girlfriend, Candy, she knows a secret. For a guy who looked so tough, he was actually scared to go home at night. The karate master scared of his own home. It started with small things, noises, things falling mysteriously. Uh, There'd be noise from the kitchen. We would hear things in his kitchen just fall. And then all of a sudden he would go, do you hear that? And I go, yeah, did you hear it? So we, we came up with just excuse after excuse after excuse for everything that was going on large things start to go missing and things so big that you couldn't misplace it. Things like laptops, silverware, all of his cleaning supplies one day disappeared and so did his MP3 player. His passport, his keys, his green card, all the wires in his car were disconnected one morning. Still, all this could be explained away until one day, Miracle noticed scratches on his walls and light bulbs and furniture. It was like zigzag scratch marks. Um, and they were on a lot of stuff. They were on, on my kitchen table, had these deep scratch marks in it. My motorcycle, which I still have, still has the scratch marks on. All the same, very kind of linear, like lightning strike type of scratch marks. That's when I started to feel like, well, this is kind of getting violent. And that's when I started to get a little afraid. He had gotten so scared that he didn't want to be in the apartment by himself. My biggest fear, though, was that it was um, a poltergeist. It wasn't something that was happening with the apartment. It was something that was happening with me. And here's the thing with poltergeists. The more you fear them, the more they do to you. 
things started getting completely out of control. Sitting and watching TV, I had a, a tower rack with CDs on it, and watching the CDs just fall off the rack for no apparent reason in front of me. There, there was no way of me... It had to be something. So it you know, made me question my whole kind of belief system in a way. When things really physically started to move and fall and toss and he started to get really paranoid. He had this obsession over the things that, that were going missing. What I ended up doing out of sheer frustration was I would sleep with my keys and my wallet and my phone in a Ziploc bag. And I would literally sleep, go to sleep holding this bag. Mirko, who considered himself very reasonable, was starting to act irrational, kind of crazy. You know, I'm not the sort of person that even believed in any of that stuff. I believe in Darwinism, you know, science. But his reality was being shaken. He had to try something. Candy suggested they start with the Buddhist temple. And then we, we were told by the, the monk at the temple to go for this process of getting this dead chicken, um, chopping it up in the living room, take pieces of the chicken and put it around the apartment in different rooms and... I'm not religious, I'm atheist, so that's another kind of extreme thing for someone like me to do. That didn't work, things were still happening. And the last thing I tried was taking this like big Chinese dagger, it was solid metal. I mean, it's a pretty hefty piece of metal. What I was told was to put that facing out towards the street, and that kind of wards off evil. All that happened with that thing was it, it got torn to pieces. Then he found the sword on the floor and it had been snapped in half. And it was almost like whatever was there that came by and broke it was kind of mocking him for even putting one up. You'd have to have some pretty decent strength. I mean, I probably couldn't have ripped that thing in half. Um, and none of this stuff basically worked. A few weeks later, I was uh, sleeping over at his apartment and woke up in the middle of the night. I see this person passing, and I'm like, oh, there's somebody in the apartment. And it's walking towards the bed. It sits down in the chair right next to me. She was there just to watch us. You know, somebody came in, walked around the bed, sat there watching us, or sat there watching me. I said to her, you know, should I be afraid? And her response was very monotone. It was like, well, that's up to you. So Mirko did some serious thinking about fear. He realized his biggest fear was that this thing would haunt him for the rest of his life, forever. At one point of this situation, when I started thinking about, well, is this something that's going to keep happening to me? It's a pretty tough thing to go through because, you know, you can't talk about it. You can't reason it out. And the only one who understood was Candy. And she wasn't so freaked out because it was clear this thing was after Mirko. The whole time I was an outsider looking in and, you know, I was trying to console him and only Mirko and myself really can know the feelings that we felt while we were there and the certainty that came along with it. And then, one day, the spirit came for Candy in her own house. I go downstairs to the kitchen and I see something moving from the corner of my eye and... It's a butcher knife. The handle, it's just rocking. None of the other knives were shaking, but the butcher knife handle was rocking. And I freak out. And that's when I realized that the haunted apartment, like, it, just, it wasn't about him anymore. At this point, it was about me. Candy left Mirko and told him it was over between them. If the poltergeist wanted Mirko, she wanted to be as far away from Mirko as possible. Um, I told myself, that's it, never talking to him again. Like, I felt bad, like I abandoned him, but I wasn't going to talk to him again. Mirko moved out of the apartment. Today, he refuses even to drive by it. I feel really bad if we ever moved into that place. So many times I felt like writing a little note saying, you know, get out of this place. He doesn't like going to apartments at all, of any kind. In fact, today, Mirko lives on a houseboat.
That story was produced by Anna Sussman and Jamie DeWolf. Okay, so this was the worst church youth group fundraiser since Jesus. It was my mother's fault. She complained to the pastor that it was not Christian for us to be peddling candy bars. So instead, the big idea was for us to sell submarine sandwiches door to door. Now, that's plenty bad enough when there's a Subway sandwich shop on every corner. But the thing was, we didn't even have any submarine sandwiches. We were supposed to take orders, and then in two weeks or so, then, then, we would deliver frozen submarine sandwiches that people could thaw out at their leisure. <laughs> it was maybe the single stupidest thing I ever had to do, but I had company, my buddy Matt. And we picked a nice neighborhood, decided to each take a side of the street and meet at the inn. And people were none too receptive to our tomfoolery. Rejection after rejection after door slam after rejection. We finally get to the end of the street, and I've sold zero subs. And he sold one to some little old lady that promised to pay in nickels. And I'm all right, but Matt, he's angry. He's like, this is stupid. This is dumb. I got I to gotta, I gotta try something else. Like what? I'm going to try this transcendental link thing I've been practicing. I'm going to speak to their soul. <laughs> whatever, man, cool with the ESP, whatever. You take this side of the street, I'll take the other one. And when we finish, I'm proud to have sold my first submarine sandwich of the evening. How many you sell? Matt puffs out his chest and reports the number. 123. What? And Matt's like, I told you, this is no joke. This is the real deal. I'm communicating on a spiritual level. It's spirit to spirit, but you don't know nothing about that. I'm like, man, you just got lucky. The next afternoon, we're heading over to Matt's girlfriend's place. And understand, Matt's my boy and everything like that. But he's not really the girlfriend having type. But somehow, some way, he's going out with Kelly. And Kelly is fine. And she's cool and she's all that. And Matt is proud big smile when she comes to the door. It's kind of weird, but I'm jealous and happy for him. Now we're over there drinking lemonade, and Matt's like, watch this. He all freaky, closes his eyes and doesn't move for like 15, 20 seconds. Then he opens his eyes smiling, and he's like, in just a minute, Jimmy and Eli are going to knock on the door. We should order pizza. And I've known this fool since we were five years old, and now he's got mystic powers. I'm like, please. But then... 30 seconds later, there's a knock on the door. It's Jimmy and Eli. And like, hey, we're going to the mall. Y'all want to come? And I can't help it. I don't want to give Matt the satisfaction, but this is crazy. How'd you do that? See, this is before cell phones and pagers. He's pulling some weird stuff, and it's not right. And Matt's like, I told you. I told you, but you're not listening. The body isn't all there is. I can leave it. I can travel on a spiritual plane, I can walk through walls, and that's just what I did. I saw Jimmy and Eli walking down the street. That night, I'm home in the bed, I'm asleep, it's about two in the morning, and our home phone starts ringing. I know it's gotta be for me, and I know my parents are gonna kill me for having my friends call this late on a school night. I run for the hall, grab the phone, who this? It's Matt, man, it's Matt. Dude, why you calling my house? She's going to take her, man. She's going to take her. She's going to take her. She's going to take her. Calm down. What happened? And Matt's like, I, I sent my spirit self to her house. Not my real self, my spirit self. I went to her room, right? And, and, and I saw her. I saw her sitting by her desk. I went over to her, but it wasn't her. It, it looked like her, but it wasn't her. It was her mother. Her dead mother. But she's there and she's looking at me. Like she'd been waiting for me. And I asked her, why was she doing there? And she said she came to get her daughter. She said she came to get Kelly. Matt, you had a bad dream, dog. He's no, I didn't. You know this is true. You know I can do this. So when Kelly didn't show up in class the next day, I thought Matt was going to lose his mind. He'd already tried to call her from school. Kelly's father told him that he couldn't talk right then, that Kelly had come down with a fever in the middle of the night that she was in the hospital and he was going there as soon as he could get someone to take care of her little brother. But when Matt told me this, he wasn't wild-eyed, he wasn't crazy, he was calm. I had to go talk to her. Dude, dude, her dad, he said he'd let you know when she could take visitors. No, man, I've got to talk to her. I've got to talk to Kelly's mother. 
I wanted to tell him that's not a good idea. You're acting crazy. I wish I'd said something to him. Something. But I just watched him grab his backpack, put his hands in his pockets, and walk away from the school. I saw Kelly about a week later. She seemed fine. She was laughing, and then she looked embarrassed when she saw me. She was holding a guy's hand, a guy who was not Matt. I went to see Matt at his house. He was in his room on his bed, kind of rocking back and forth. His clothes, his hair were damp with sweat. It stank. Matt, what happened? I saw her. I saw Kelly's mother. She asked for something. I gave it to her, and she went away. Matt, what did you give her? I thought it wasn't very much. Matt, what did you give her? Just a little bit. Just a little bit. I thought it was just a little bit. A little bit of what? And then he says it. I gave her a little bit of me. That story was produced by Stephanie Fu. And it is not over. It is never over. You heard something scary. Now you want to see something scary. We've got it for you on our site, snapjudgment.org, a short snap judgment film that will make you want to stay home in the nighttime where you belong. Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the underground, undulating unteam of the undead. Please have a moment of silence for the underproducer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Rita Daniels claims she does not suck people's blood. Stephanie Fu sees in the dark. Anna Sussman still does not believe Will Urbina dances in the light of the moon. Jamie the Wolf tastes like chicken. Lindsay Lee Keel sleeps in a coffin. Pat Masidi Miller is made of parts and Renzo Gorio wears chains for a reason. If you happen to see someone creeping through your house, banging on pots and pans, knocking down your good china, do not be afraid. That's the Corporation for Public Broadcasting looking for something to eat. Many thanks to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, putting the public in public media. PRX.org. And now you know this is not the news. This isn't anywhere near the news. In fact, you could play checkers every day with the neighbor across the street. You could share his wine eat his food, pat his kids on the head each and every morning until the priest informs you that the only family to have lived in that house passed away in a fire 40 years ago after vowing to live forever. (laughs) Yeah, you could discover all this and still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.